For many people today, healthcare feels like we're behind enemy lines. The system is geared to take care of us, but why do we feel like we're in it alone? Everyday stories are a powerful way to shine light on the gaps that make it feel this way. I'd like to welcome you to Everyone Hates Healthcare, where we bring you real people's healthcare stories, unfiltered. And now your host, Michael Swartz. Hey, everybody. Michael Swartz here, and I want to welcome you back to the show. Today, we have Matthew Holt, best known as the founder of the healthcare blog and the Health 2.0 conferences. He now splits his time between the healthcare blog, Catalyst at Health 2.0, and Smack Health, where he advises startups navigating the healthcare world. With nearly 30 years in healthcare and health tech as a generalist, forecaster, and strategist, Matthew has worked for world-renowned forecasting and polling organizations, conducted several groundbreaking in-depth studies about the many aspects of healthcare, and delivered several keynote addresses all over the world and now all over Zoom. Many, including myself, consider him one of the greats in the world of digital health. Matthew, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Very excited to be talking to you. Thank you, Michael. I like that. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as a great in the world of digital health. Not sure I qualify, but I really appreciate you <laughs> saying that. <laughs> I mean, you've been in healthcare way before it was the hottest thing in town, before it was cool. <laughs> oh, tell, tell, oh. Us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. How, how'd you get into healthcare? Uh, well, so that's, that's a funny story, right? So I, I, was, I was a typical English kid, went to college in the UK, came out, this is the 80s, because I am old, wandered around the city, the financial, the sort of Wall Street of London, was a complete abject failure, kept on getting fired from jobs, didn't know what I was doing. And after a few years, I'd been on vacation, there was a woman involved to San Francisco, and well, that was a nice place. And then I realized I'm getting nowhere fast doing this, I should find out some other way of, of you know, going and doing something else. And I ended up in, ended up getting a master, you know, getting a position, getting a master's degree at Stanford. In the middle of that, I mean, literally, I was studying Japanese international political economy. I was, you know, I wasn't studying healthcare stuff at all. But by random reason, I did a, a term paper on a Japanese healthcare, basically just because nobody else was doing it. No one else was doing sort of international politics and stuff and, and Japanese car. And this was back in the 80s when the Japanese was, Japan was China. Japan was about to take over the world, not China about to take over the world, and we were all scared of it, right? Um, so anyway, I did stuff in the Japanese healthcare system, and then a guy showed up at Stanford, not even the next year, but the next term, with some money to study Japanese healthcare. And so I was the only guy who knew anything about it, so I was appended to him, and I spent a lot of time there. I extended my stay at Stanford by actually about nearly by another two years, ended up doing a whole lot of work on American healthcare as part of this project comparing Japanese and American healthcare. And then I ended up getting a degree in health services research. So I had you know, no intentions of doing this when I went into Stanford, but it all lucked out. And then I worked, mentioned those renowned forecasting organizations. I worked at the Institute for the Future for five years, which was, and I, when I got there, I was supposed to be the, sort of the guy to help with their programs, which were looking at the future of healthcare for their customers, who were predominantly drug companies, health insurance companies, hospitals, you know, medical device companies, those kinds of players. And they also, just random, they had a technology forecasting division, which never talked to the healthcare division. But somebody in the technology division had sold a project about healthcare to the technology companies, and no one in the healthcare division or the technology division wanted to do it. And they looked at me and they went, well, you're the idiot who just walked in. You can do it. So I ended up 
getting involved in looking at technology and healthcare. And that's back in 1993. And really, I kind of rode the wave of the first iteration of the web, you know, e-health online in the sort of dot-com boom. And then I sort of kept doing that. And I was in a startup at one point and I was, and then later on, I was consulting to companies. And then I started the blog called the Healthcare Blog, which was about sort of, it still is, still, still going strong, which is about anything to do with healthcare, health to healthcare business, healthcare policy, experience of doctors, and always had a strong bent towards health technology. And in 2007, 2006, I met a woman called Indu Sabaya, who was doing that, who was a doctor, who was at that stage doing sort of, she'd come out of the drug world and was doing sort of more analysis of, of new startups in healthcare. And all the work I was doing on the blog, all the people there said, all the companies I was working with, especially the small startups, were saying, ah, no one else writes about us, no one else cares about us, it's just you, Matthew. And so I said to Indy, you know, I have all these companies talking to me and they say I should do a conference. And she said, yes, we should do a conference. And that was basically our business plan. <laughs> and that was the Health 2.0 conference. And that went, you know, 10 years. We sold it to Hims in 2017. And it was pretty successful. We had conferences all over the world. And we had, for a long time, we were the place where new health tech companies sort of unveiled themselves. And while that was going on, you, you know, you mentioned, Michael, this was, it, it taken a long time for this stuff to become, you know, hot and sexy the way it is today. You know, it went, there was a little bit of venture capital in the mid 2000s. There was a decent amount actually in the 90s. And that went away a bit in the 2000s. And then kind of from 2011, 12, 13, it started getting more exciting. A couple of the companies went public. And we were basically following that whole trend. And I think the first conference, there were 40 or 50 companies we had on stage out of probably 100 we could have had. And now there's probably eight to 10,000, you know, wow. health tech digital companies around. And many of them are huge and have raised huge amounts of money. There's about 50 or so to the public. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a real thing now. <laughs> it has just been crazy. And what have you seen with COVID? Have you seen any bump in the venture yeah. capital side of things? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things happened in COVID. I did a study. So the bit that is called Catalyst to Health 2.0, you mentioned in my bio, that is the part of Health 2.0 we didn't sell, which is like a research consulting program management company. And I did a study, this survey of about 200 digital health companies and asked them a whole bunch of questions about their experience with COVID. And the, the answer was a couple of things. One is that they all saw big bumps in usage and interest, right? And not a surprise because People couldn't leave the house, and so they're looking for more online solutions, right? And they also all saw much bigger rounds if they were already scaling. So if you're starting a really early-stage digital health company, it doesn't matter how sexy and trendy the area is. It's tough, right? Any really early-stage startup, especially if it's your first one and just getting going, you know, it's tough to raise that first round. I mean, I, I, speak, I have lots of CEOs I talk with in that early stage, and they're still, you know, taking a long time and they're still talking to dozens, if not hundreds of venture capitalists and angels and so they're really scrambling together to put, to put together that first round. But if you've got going, right, if you have raised that first round, you've got the first 10, 15, 20 customers or the first, you know, a few thousand users and you look like you've got something going, then there is a ton of money around. And since COVID, you know, since we've seen the growth in telehealth and and remote monitoring since COVID, then there has been a ton. And that's now when you're seeing these huge rounds for companies that are scaling fast, you know, where they're raising 50, 100, 200, 300, some cases more than that, you know, million dollars. 
and you know, seen a couple of $500 million raises. And that's really the companies that have kind of got a business model and want to throw gas on the fire. So that's the biggest difference, I think, is that there is now the emergence of these market leaders, and there's kind of a rush for a land grab to become the dominant force in, say, you know, direct-to-consumer pharmacy or in telehealth or in remote patient monitoring or in mental health or whatever, and raising a lot of money, hiring people, you know, getting out to more clients, acquiring more business has become much more of a land grab and a, a sort of mad, mad rush than it was sort of three, four years ago pre-COVID. Yeah, I mean, COVID, COVID's been an interesting one because it just seems like more and more people just all of a sudden are comfortable with technology. And I always give a story of my father. For the longest time, he was not great with technology. He was actually awful with technology. The only thing he knew was like these travel pricing sites. He would always show me the newest and hottest like good deal app to get a good hotel, a good flight, but anything else, Uber, all these different things. Well, I wasn't allowed at his house for about a year and a half. And about a couple months ago, he finally, him and his wife allowed me back into the house. And let me tell you, he had Alexas tied up all over the house. The fridge was controlled <laughs> by the Alexa. It was who, I didn't know who this guy was. And I just see this happening. It's not something that's unique to him. Are, are you seeing that in healthcare? Are you seeing more people? Yeah, I mean, you know, the healthcare numbers are, are really quite staggering. So, so let me give you a, a story. So about, oh, I want to say late 2018, early 2019, sometime, sometime around there, the Wall Street Journal had a conference on digital health. And I was in the audience and the conference is in San Francisco. And the CEO of Teladoc, Jason Gorovich, was on stage and they had polled the audience. They polled the audience. And this is the audience at a Wall Street Journal conference on digital health. This is not like random Americans. This is people who are presumably wealthier than average, smarter than average, younger than average, who care about digital health. They asked the audience how many of them had ever had an online telehealth visit. And the number was like 33%. <laughs> and I literally said, so, so I, uh, at the end of Jason saying, oh, yeah, the questions you were inside still upset. But Jason looked at me and went, oh, God, it's Matthew. <laughs> and he went, and I went, um, so Jason, you know, you know, we're in this incredibly turned on, attuned audience you'd think would care about this, would be early adopters and all the rest of it. Why is this 32%? Why are we so low? Why the hell is this taking so long? You know, we, this stuff has been around for 10 years now. And you know, he waffled his way through it. But in the end, right, COVID came to save him and everybody else. So there are a lot of reasons why it was so, you know, the prevalence was so low before. But the predominant reason was culturally people didn't get their care that way. And more importantly, the deliverers of care didn't deliver it that way, right? It was always like this weird thing they had to check the box because the benefit consultants told them they had to have telehealth, but it wasn't like the mainstream way people saw their doctor. So then you get to COVID and you can't see your doctor. And the only way you can do it is via some kind of telehealth platform. And then the, the ramp up in the use of telehealth tools by doctors, and not necessarily in teledoc in American world, but things like Doximity and DoxyMe and, and, and even just Zoom and FaceTime, right? And even the, the ramp up in that was quick and it was driven by you know, this incredible need because you couldn't go and see them. So if you look at the data, it's something like the use within a year 
was at about 80 to 100 times what it had been, you know, in about the middle of 2020, it had been 2019. And even after people go back to normal, quote unquote, it's still like, it's gone down by about half from the peak, but it's still like 30, 40 times what it was. So, you know, I think that the use of video visits is one thing. And then once you start doing that, right, once you start saying, okay, we can connect with our patients over synchronous video, then you start thinking about what are the other things we can do? How can we make this, you know, a better system for everybody? And then you start thinking about what well, can we monitor them at home? Can we do asynchronous management? Can we do the give the patient self-management? And it's very interesting. If you look at some data, so Crossover Health, which is, a, you know, one of these newfangled sort of employer-based clinics run by a guy called Scott Shreve. Crossover Health, they actually acquired a telehealth company run by a guy called Jay Parkinson, and they sort of are now merged all together. And what they say in their data is that for certain things, you know, mental health particularly, it's not gone back. It's just all gone virtual. No one wants to go and see a therapist in a, you know, in, in their clinic setting anymore. They're just happy to do this at home. They don't need, it's just conversation. They don't need to have any face-to-face. For really intense physical stuff, like physical therapy, they've had it hard to make the transition. And then for things like, you know, just general physician visits, it's about half and half right? Which you think is you don't need to have a physical exam all the time. But what we're going to see, and it's starting to see, is we're going to see more and more tools enabling a physical exam to be done either at home or in kind of satellite clinics and shopping malls and stuff like that. You're going to see people with all kinds of devices to poke, prod, touch, and whatever, the individual. And more and more of care is going to be delivered by teams of people, you know, part human, part robot in bunkers, you know, or in call centers, not in the traditional doctor's office, because the traditional doctor's office and clinic and hospital is a very inefficient place to deliver care. There's a lot of travel involved from both sides. There's a lot of logistics involved. And if you could make that work in a non, getting to people where they are, where they are, you're going to have a probably, you know, you'll have a better experience and you'll probably have better outcomes. So, you know, we're in the middle of that. And I think your dad, you know, with the, with the, the move toward all his Alexis and fridges and all the stuff being wired is probably very typical. Most people have figured out that you can get closer to a better experience if people are prepared to use technology. And, you know, know, all kinds of people who said that they could only do stuff face-to-face, they find they they don't have to, right? So two two areas that I know well that this has changed, right? One is venture capital. You always used to say the venture capital say, well, I'm never going to invest in a company that's more than an hour's drive away from me so I can go and see them and see the board meeting. And Yet, over the last 18 months, you've seen incredible rounds raised, in some cases, by people who the, who the venture capitalists have never met. It's just been done on Zoom. And a similar thing for conferences. I mean, I, I ran a physical conference, and I just ran a virtual conference. Jester Massa, my colleague, and I, who work on a little show, Health in 2.0, we put together a conference called Policies, Techies, VCs, What's Next for Healthcare. And we had 300 people who came to this conference. We had, you know, about 100 CEOs and, and venture capitalists and senior government officials all talking. And it was all done virtually. Some of it was live, some of it was pre-recorded. But you know, it, it was a, a place where people could all get together and come around a sort of you know virtual fireplace and see a conference. And it's very different than the face-to-face conference. I'm not sure I like it as much, but it's certainly something that you know, can be done. So I think that the that transition, you know, COVID. I'm not saying that it was a great thing that we had COVID. In fact, it's been a bit of a disaster for the world that we've had COVID. But it has been, not to mention, you know, millions of people dead across the world and all the the issues that have come out from it. But it's really shown people that, you know, you you could give something a big shunt and move it ahead. And don't forget, Michael, 
technology has often been given a big shunt by bad things, usually wars, but, you know, pandemics, wars, other crises have moved people quickly towards, you know, using technologies that, that have kind of been sitting around. And I think this is a big case of it. No question. It's opened people's eyes. So where do you think based off of your experience? Because most most of the listeners and myself and you and pretty much everybody, like we're all healthcare consumers. So let's focus in on the healthcare consumer, the person who's actually going and getting care. But where do you think the areas are that you think are going to be the most valuable for us, the everyday American, which also could potentially be winners on the investment side? You know, I think there are probably four main groups of people who who are going to you know, find the experience change, right? So the first one is kind of the everyday American, you know, middle class, upper class consumer who's been putting up with care from their local doctor's office and their local health system. And they are going to find a plethora of new options coming to them either via their employer or director or consumer or whatever to do various things that they didn't have to deal with before. And some of these options are going to come from retail players like Walmart and CVS. Some of them are going to come from, you know, new players online only like, Oh, hymns and row and lemonade. Others are going to come in the sort of guys of these new mental health companies, but they're going to be offered options to access care in a way that, they didn't really realize before. And there's going to be a lot of consumer funding behind that, a lot of consumer power behind that. So I think that group is going to get a better experience because the current incumbents who in general, and you know, it's oversimplification, in general are big, fat, happy health systems who make their money off their inpatient care of very sick people and have all these, uh, been buying all these feeder systems, these primary care feeder systems into them over the years and haven't really paid a lot of attention to the experience of those folks. You know, with their entry, first entry to primary to primary care, you know, as long as they can find the ones who they can do, you know, the, the cardiac get into their cardiac cath lab for to give them a stent or you know, give them a bypass or give them sort of knee surgery or whatever. They, they don't care too much what, how those people got there. They've just been buying up that supply. They are going to have to realize that that you know, business as usual isn't good enough because someone like a One Medical or an Oak Street Health or whatever can give these these folks a much you know, or a Hims or a whomever right can give these people a much better experience and they might lose them. So that's that's number one. So that group, I think, is going to have a big, big change. And there's actually a group of whether you like to call them navigators or not, folks like Accolade and Transparent and Grand Rounds, who are going to help direct traffic for those people when they sign up out when they sign up at uh, at work, you know, as for the employer. So so that first group, that experience is going to change a lot. Second group going to change i think is the underserved this may take a little bit longer but you finally started to seeing some people saying how can we deliver care in a better way to people who are at the sort of the bottom of the totem pole in american healthcare and so there are a couple of examples of venture-backed companies who are doing pretty well who are really trying to change the game and how they deal with people on medicaid and the uninsured so one i would call is city block health eventually spin out from google but they've raised now i think 600 million dollars and they're building these really impressive you know, clinic-based, but but in the community-based tools for basically finding people who have, who have who are either on Medicaid or uninsured and getting them much much better continuative care and primary care. There's a company called Unite Us, which is doing similar things by putting together a network of not just healthcare but also social services agencies, housing agencies, addiction clinics. You know, 
all kinds of different food banks all kind of, and putting them on a network so that the people who use those agencies can get routed around more efficiently and people know, you know what's going on with them. So I would say that's an area to look at. The second area there is people who have. The third area is people with some kind of chronic illness. You started to see this a bit before the pandemic, but I think this is going to really change over time. I think we're going to move to a significant home alternate site, nursing home, you know, place of work, place wherever people are in the day. I think we're going to see a significant move towards really comprehensive 24-7 monitoring and management of those people where they are. So you talk about your dad with his Alexa in every room. doesn't take much to, to say, okay, well, that things we're going to wire up that house and, you know, wire, and to some extent wire up your dad and have sensors all over the place in his bathroom and his bed and elsewhere to track how he how he's doing, you know. And this, I think, as people age into place, there's going to be a lot of that, but also the same thing's true with people with, with uh, chronic illness like diabetes and elsewhere. Right now, we're just monitoring their blood glucose, but I think we're going to go to a much further place. And I call this, uh, I have a slide in the tech to talk about this, which I call the continuous clinic. But basically, instead of thinking about we're going to see a patient when they come in once a month or once every two months or when they go into hospital, we're really going to be on them 24-7 doing continuous monitoring, continuous measurement, continuous messaging, and continuous measure and continuous management of these individuals. And with the goal of keeping them out of the hospital, keeping them healthy and safe where they are. And included in that will be a lot of coaching. So, you know, we're seeing early days of coaching. Folks like Livongo and Teladoc have been doing some coaching for people with diabetes. Folks like people like companies like Noom have been doing it for people on diet. Other Others like Virta and Vida are, are doing it as well. But to my mind, you're going to have a extraordinary amount of like intensive management and interfacing with those people, which will improve their lives a lot, but also, you know, should reduce healthcare costs. Because as you know, we're spectacularly good in America ignoring something until it becomes a crisis. And then we throw all kinds of stuff at it, usually in the emergency room or in hospitals. And, you know, we're, we're although I wouldn't say that's been, you know, that, that, that has been cured as a national trait, the ability now to use that technology and, and change things is, is, is true. And you're now seeing a lot of money going into, you know, specific vertical companies dealing with different types of chronic diseases. I saw a couple of companies, one for epilepsy. Interesting. One, one, one this morning for um, PCOS, right, which is a sort of a, a young woman's hormonal disease, where they are basically putting together the entire stack of virtual and real-life care for those people around those conditions that they have to manage 24-7. And then, you know, if you think about there's a ton of companies doing this in diabetes, people with back, you know, people with musculoskeletal back pain and knee pain, a ton of companies already doing this for heart failure, you know. So I can you can just see the move towards let's identify people who are expensive in the healthcare system and let's throw resources around them in a way that can give them a better quality of life by doing this sort of 24-7 management. 25, 30 years ago, good buddy of mine called John Madison was at a, from Moza just recently out of Kaiser Permanente, but a really smart doctor at Kaiser. I had him on a panel and he said, you know, the, the problem with this chronic care is we, uh, we know what to do. We just don't know how to do it. And that's been the issue, right? We've known how to treat people with all these chronic illnesses and, you know, how you should get them to you know, live healthier lives and have a better outcome. We just haven't known how to do it at scale. And we're now starting to get the technology place to do it at scale. So that's the third group, the chronic illness group. And then the fourth group is people who actually need help, you know, 
much more intensively with who have got a, an acute illness. And I think some of that is going to go into the home as well. But also we're we're spending a lot of we're starting to spend a lot of time and effort to understand which hospitals and which caregivers and which clinicians and which drugs, you know, which procedures work best for them and directing traffic to those higher quality areas. So this is kind of the goal of the navigator group that I mentioned earlier. They're doing a lot of time and effort, you know, saying, okay, if I can get, if somebody needs to have this cancer surgery or they need to have this oncology treatment, they need to have, you know, this treatment for whatever chronic pain they've got, where is the best place to get them to? Because there's a lot of very average medicine being delivered across the country. And, you know, if you could get people to the higher quality medicine, so much better. So I think that's the fourth group that we'll have, we'll see changes for. None of this is going to be perfect. It's not like tomorrow, everything is going to be great and wonderful, but we're certainly starting to see people segment the population in such a way to say, what are the needs of these people and how can we do it? And the good news about American healthcare is that we spend so much money, we waste so much money that if you can do it right the first time and improve people's quality of life and improve their outcomes, you actually will save a bit of money. So there should be money in the system to pay for this new stuff. Now, just hearing you talk about it, first thing I, I think of with the bringing the care and all the sensors in your house, how do you think, you know, with, with everything, let's take Facebook, for example, you know, Facebook hasn't done itself any favors and it's really shined a light on people wanting ownership of their data. Do you see any concerned you see any roadblocks of people not wanting all this tracking and like how do we protect us the consumer that our data is just not out there flying around yeah i agree i think that there's a combination of things that are going to help here right so one is there's a bunch of very activist patients who feel their data has been locked up by the current healthcare system and the law 21st Century Cures Act is now firmly on their side, right? You can now, it is required that you or your agent, be it another doctor or whoever it is, can get access to your data. And they're going to be, there's a lot of technology and companies starting to be built around that. So I think, you know, one question is, can I get access to the data that's mine? Can I get control myself over that data? And the answer is going to be increasingly yes. The next question is, okay, so now I am... You know, I, I am concerned about someone misusing my data and I'm going to be giving them or giving somebody a lot more data via my, you know, via all the sensors in my house and all the rest of it. And people are waking up to that. And I think there is going to be a good deal of business in sort of data security and uh, real data opt-in and opt-out rather than just, you know, let's give you 27 forms the first time you come to the doctor and you sign them all because you have to and you can't read them. You know, I think that we're going to get sort of the, the management of people's security and data and privacy is in itself going to be a big deal. And the third thing is, I mean, I I think we're getting there. It's a while. It's taken a while. I think we're getting there. But the Facebook effect is people are aware this is an issue, right? If you just willingly hand over all access to your data to people, they, they can target you. I mean, in all honesty, Facebook targets you in a way that is, on the one hand, pretty inconsequential. Yeah, I'm getting, I mean, in fact, it kind of annoys the crap out of me. The other day, I bought some wine for a client. And I went on Facebook and like every second commercial was for wine. And I said, well, I just bought the wine. So it's a bit late now. <laughs> Somehow they tagged me as somebody wants to buy wine, right? That doesn't, to me, doesn't really matter. Obviously for society, you know, Facebook and, and some of these algorithmic based feeds have been targeting people and, and delivering their messages, which, 
you know, has, has caused. Some people say it's an active crime scene. It's unclear to say what bad actors, what other bad actors have been doing on those platforms, but certainly a lot of uh, misinformation, disinformation, et cetera, you know, not only around elections and politics, but also COVID and other stuff. I think people are aware of that. And I think the companies and organizations and businesses that are doing this sort of in-home management of the care are getting very wary about what they can and can't do with the data. And I think the regulators are going to be much more on it than they were. So by definition, you are going to have people who are you know, unwilling to do this and don't want to have monitoring of themselves in the house and whatever, what have you. But I think that's going to be a minority. And for everybody else, there will be, I think, more guardianship looking over what's going to happen than there has been in the past. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it, it's trust. I mean, we tend to trust certain brands more than others. So I, I see really it's the brands that are trusted that people are going to be comfortable. And I do have a guilty pleasure um, when it comes to Facebook and my data. I actually go on Instagram, not to like people's pictures, but to purchase things because it knows me better than anybody. Like I'm wearing shoes right now some Cole Hans they had $300 striped it out 86. It knew that it would be something I'd be interested in. I'm interested in good deals. So I think it's this idea of if the brand can build the trust, the convenience and the value it creates can be make it people much more comfortable with here you go, giving you access. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. So I think there is an exchange of value. You know, you can get stuff out of Facebook, Instagram, where else that you couldn't before. The fact that you, they know a bit more about you. You know, sometimes it's the wine example, right? Where yeah. they've got to be too late and it's stupid. <laughs> you know, and they'll, they'll have to get smarter about that. You know, and then sometimes it's the shoes example, right? They know you're looking for bigger shoes and when the deal comes up, they can get, they can, they can get you to become a customer. But I think in terms of healthcare data, yeah, there are people, and you know, there's an interesting account, the medical quack on Twitter, like Barbara, I don't know her last name, but she's a doctor who's like completely opposed to the amount of algorithms and code that's being used to, to direct traffic. And there's a lot of people who, you know, there's a lot of issues with code driving people one way or the other and enforcing current issues, maybe in AI or elsewhere. However, you know, we know about it now in a way that we didn't before. And we're, yeah. wise, we're wise to it and we like to it. And we know that, you know, really significant things like <laughs> civil wars in some countries and uh, military coups, not to mention our 2016 election, you know, and the Brexit thing and uh, what's going on with COVID can be driven by, you know, th- these algorithms and by false information. And I think people's privacy and people's personal information and how that gets used is something that's much more top of mind and with the regulators as well. So it's, brands is one thing, but also regulation and you know uh, health as a highly regulated industry is going to to my mind be a bigger deal in the, it's already a big deal it's going to be a big deal in the future and i think that will in some ways protect and enhance the good that can be done from this kind of there's a lot of going to be a lot of invasive monitoring going to go be going on but if it does you good and helps you i think in general most people will accept it yeah i mean it's healthcare. Healthcare has been such a crazy beast for myself and just most Americans. Do you see anything from the consumer perspective that can help with the idea of like all of a sudden just getting this crazy bill? Like people are 
staying away from going to the doctor, going to get healthcare just because of the cost. You see stuff, you see companies, verticals that are coming in and helping make it affordable or understandable for the average consumer just navigating, managing healthcare. This continues to be a really big issue and it's not going to get better anytime soon. But I see a number of companies are trying to help, as you mentioned, do some navigation around this, help people understand what you know, what they actually owe, what their advocates are, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that that is coming slowly. On the other hand, we need to figure out, we need to figure out some way of dealing with this in the US and maybe ask a particularly American way because, you know, they, we don't seem to want to go to the, the rational way of doing this in a kind of, you know, single payer universal healthcare system. But we need to figure out some way that people who don't have money, you know, aren't restricted from getting a care. Um, you know, and the things that that are still going on in terms of hospitals suing people for like five thousand dollars and docking their wages and that kind of stuff when those people don't have any money. You know, that all that crazy shit has got to stop. There are some companies aiming in that area. There's one called CEDA, which is in that area. There's some others as well. You know, we're trying to help. There are, I said, these navigation companies are trying to help people understand where they should be going, what they should be doing, and what their bills mean. But yeah, the, the whole thing is is still both administratively and bureaucratically messed up on the billing side. And it does need to be changed. I think we need a lot of federal changes in federal regulations and how things work. But the actual problem you mentioned, which is you know, people not going to the doctor because of cost, there are some companies now who are trying to figure that out. And I mentioned the people in the for the unsured of the Medicaid. There are a number of companies. Uh, I mentioned CityBlock, but there are a number of others who are trying to figure out what can I, what can I do to get an affordable or free experience to these people that's really going to help them. Now, do you see any value? So I'm actually, uh, I have insurance. I have an HSA plan. I have virtual primary care, which is $29.50 and it gives me unlimited visits to a primary care, but I also have direct primary care. This whole idea of a single price that gives you a certain amount of services. Do you see any movement in how paying, how the finances work of healthcare? Because I've actually went to the doctor since being part of this direct primary care, both in person and virtual. But do you see any movement in, in that front? Like, is there a change that is happening or that's needed on the way that insurance works? So, yes. I mean, we need a lot of changes to figure out how insurance works. And there are some new insurance companies and new plans trying to figure out how they could adjust to that. But the, I mean, you get crazy stuff in the current system. I mean, let, let me give you examples of crazy stuff I'm going through right now. So my my insurance comes from Blue Cross of Massachusetts because my wife works for a Boston-based company, even though I'm in California. And so I went for my COVID vaccine and for my uh, COVID test. And in both cases, I didn't get a bill from the, I don't even know who the provider was. And I got an EOB from Blue Cross of Massachusetts. And in both cases, they attached a check to it. So I've actually got checks <laughs> paying me for that. I assume at some point they were supposed to pay this to the companies. And you know, that's like the bizarrest, was it with your name uh, on it? Example, right? I'm, I'm in the money. But yes, the other thing is true, right? We're clearly, but the, the inverse for me is true, which is that my, the reason I got these, these checks is because my kid fell off my shoulders in a swimming pool and he cracked his chin on my head and he had to go to the emergency room and, got, and, and get four stitches. And the cost of that wiped out my deductible. No, I'm lucky I could afford it. We had nature, like you, we had an HSA account. Yeah. But I mean, I, I was trying to get him to a urgent care center. They actually, it was late enough in the day that it was all closed. 
purely because you know I knew the emergency room was which where we ended up going was just going to cost so much more money, you know. But the issue the issue is we are, to my mind, kind of dicking around with that below the deductible amount, which is in fact you know which is what most Americans spend. But the real cost of the system for the people who have chronic illness or you know really bad acute illness. Who are not spending, you know, one, two, three, four thousand dollars a family a year, but are spending 20, 30, 40, 80, 100 thousand dollars per family per year. And that's what we have to get a hold of for our pricing. So I think that direct primary care and the various other new flavors of primary care seems to have the ability, you know, and it needs to be proven in a big scale to spend more upfront on primary care and spend less, you know, and do a better job of managing people's use of specialty care and hospital care down the down the road. If you look at the either the direct primary care guys who are charging you know, concierge fees up front or the people who are doing going at risk in the primary care groups like Iora or Oak Street or others, they seem to be saving money down, down the road for their payers you know, and, their, and, and their patients. And I, I think that, you know, frankly, as far as I can tell by my back of the envelope calculations, we could give everybody in America, we may not have the doctors to do it, but we could give everybody in America access to direct primary care and so long as they, you know, for for in the order of for less than for less than a trillion dollars, and as long as that had savings, you know, at the back end, reduced care on hospital care and, and surgery, which I think it probably would do, we'd be better off, and that would give everybody, you know, access to really good primary healthcare. So I think that's the direction we should be heading in, and we're not going to get there by my fiat and everyone joining MDVIP or one of those companies. But we may get there by a combination of Medicare Advantage and employers and others saying, you know, you're going to have to go to one of these, like you have, Michael, combo virtual or virtual real direct primary care. And that's, and we're going to manage you or primary care. We're not just going to let you, you know, we're not just going to let you be abused by the system and be, you know, either be out of sorts or wander around it until, until you get to, you know, wherever you get, which probably ends up being worse for your health and more expensive. So I think over time, we're going to move in that direction. It's just going to take a while because the system is currently not set up for that. The customer is not set up to give you, you know, really inclusive direct primary care. It's, it's, it's uh, comprehensive direct primary care. It's set up to give you seven-minute office visits and then shuffle you through to the, to the highest cost provider if they can, you know, if that's where you're going to go. So Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about how there's cost savings on, on the back end. It's... I think there's two things just from what you say that is important that we target as a society. One is the cost of chronic conditions, but the other is we haven't been able to see that we're all about the present. We have such a short-term way of thinking in America. So I, I think how much of the cost where we stand today is driven by people just not staying healthy, not going to the doctor when they should, holding back, whether it's because of cost. What are your thoughts on that piece? The cost as it relates, like, have we just let it get so out of control that we are a much less healthy country or is it just the system has run amok? Well, it's both, right? I mean, don't forget, healthcare is fighting a potentially losing battle with a bunch of other stuff. So if you think about social terms of health, which really comes down to things like housing, income, education, food. We know that we are on all those fronts fighting a losing battle. Things are getting worse, more unequal. 
worse access, especially down the you know people down at the bottom of the economic ladder are, are really struggling with all those. A lot of that shows up in the healthcare system. So one thing we got to do is try and take care of that on a more global societal level. You know, if you get somebody secure housing is living on the street, they're much less likely to be spending money in healthcare. If you get if people get better education, we know people with better education are healthier. It's a straight, it's a it's a causal relationship. If we knew, you know, could get people to eat healthier get people access to healthier food rather than fast food, we know that would improve their life and their lifestyle and eventually work through into, into healthcare. So I think that stuff's really big and important. And we are we are making big changes in those areas. You know, they're going through the first grinding elements of societal change. But, you know, agriculture and housing are going to look very different in the future. We are seeing that change happen in society right now with energy and transportation, right? The, the shift towards renewable energy and electric power. I mean, that's going to be a big change for the next... 10, 15, 20 years. So I think those changes are coming. But in terms of, you know, saving healthcare dollars in the next couple of years by everyone eating healthier, that's not how it's going to work, right? The reason we spend too much money on healthcare is because of poor diagnosis and poor treatment. And we, you know, by low quality and effective providers, we need to be much clearer about doing the right thing to the, to the patient the first time. And that, you know, there is there are things patients can do to help in that, but a lot of that is, is getting you know better information, helping them getting involved in their care. So that's especially for the expensive stuff, the really expensive stuff, right? Get you to the if I get you to the best cancer diagnosis, get you on the right drug, you're more likely to live, you're more likely more likely to cost a lot less money than if I, you know, have a more effective and you go through six rounds of chemo or whatever it happens to be before you before you die. So that's you know, that's the area where which we need the most attention. But the second most, and you mentioned this, is kind of the people who are on the edge, right? People who are on the edge of chronic illness or on the edge of chronic illness need a lot more help around things like nutrition and, and elsewhere. And some of this raised the cost, right? We have to make some of these programs free and easy for them compared to expecting them to pay for it and then be putting it off. But also, you know, as you talk about prevention, you, know, you need to concentrate the preventive firepower and the support and the help and the coaching on people who are close to tipping into those expensive categories, close to tipping into poor health. And I think we can do a lot more there in aggressive targeting of people who are, you know, have pre-diabetes or have, or have diabetes and don't, you know, but and don't quite know how to manage it, but need to need to be taught how to manage it and a lot of care in that area. So I think that's where we're going to head. And I think we'll see a lot more, you know, care in different places, including in the home and at work and elsewhere for those kinds of individuals. So you 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 hit on a point about the everyday American being a better healthcare consumer, making sure that they're navigating, going to the right doctor. What, what would you, if you were giving advice to somebody who is just confused, like they have to go to a certain doctor, like what, what do people do? Like, what is your advice to whether it's finding a tool they can use? Like I'm Michael and I'm an everyday American and I'm confused on how to do something. What would your advice be to me? Well, we're not quite there yet, but we do need to have you know, a, a system of sort of trusted health advisors, much as the way we're kind of getting there with a financial advisor. So if you were worried about your retirement, you know, it's good advice now to say, talk to an independent financial professional who's fee-based, who isn't selling you products that they make money out of. You know, we want to try and generate that group of people to go and talk to. And there are people who advertise themselves, you know, companies who advertise themselves as being those folks. And there are now a new generation of those in the financial market, like Wealthfront and, and Personal Capital and others who are basically managing, who are, who are playing that role, right? 
Whereas in the old days, you know, you talked to a financial advisor and they were selling you the stuff that, you know, they were, they were selling the most expensive mutual funds because they were making more money out of it. So we're still in that sort of phase in healthcare, but you're seeing the emergence of these, I think, you know, direct primary care doctors on some of these online medical groups, especially the ones who are at risk, some of these navigators, patient advocate navigator types. There's a number of those. And I think that I would be looking out for those people, the other, those, those types of organizations. The other thing, especially if I had some kind of illness, especially if I had someone else, is that there is a ton now of access to other, sadly, losses on Facebook, but it's a separate problem, to other people who have the same conditions. And there's a ton of information that patients are sharing amongst themselves. And this has been going on for a while, right? So patients like me and Inspire, companies like that, uh, comes out my health teams, they've been providing these kinds of online forums for, for, for more than a decade now. And you can find out a lot about who is good, who's bad, what works, what doesn't work. You know, who are the specialists in this area who really understand it, especially if you have one of these uh, debilitating and chronic and expensive chronic illnesses. So I think those are probably the two, two areas to hope for. It's like, what can other patients tell you? And what can these more neutral advocates as they, you know, expand on the scene, on the scene come, and help, come and help you with? But I think in the end, it's like, can you find a primary care doc that you trust who is not connected to a big healthcare system, you know, you don't think it's just trying to pass you along, who can spend time with you and can get to know you holistically. And maybe that comes with a, in a conjunction with a chronic care management organization, or maybe it comes as, as a part of a big, bigger primary care group. But that's kind of where I think I would be going. That's interesting, your, your comparison to financial advisors and the digital tools in finance. Very confusing industry for a lot of people finances are a tough thing to understand. And you have this whole slew of companies that have really looked to make things easier, simpler. Do you see healthcare heading in that direction? Do And if you do, uh, where do you think we are on making it to where we have the credit karmas, the wealth fronts, the Robin yeah. Hoods. Yeah. I'm not sure I'll put Robin Hood as being somebody who's always on the, on the side of there. <laughs> but, but certainly, you know, if you think about the less, there are companies now on the financial services side, you mentioned, you know, no wallet and wealth front and some others, you know, who are, who are definitely saying we are, we are putting, you know, what your grandfather always told you about managing money carefully. We are putting that into action for you in a way that, you know, <laughs> in a way that is we're on your side and we're making a fee off that. You know, and I, and I think there you can argue there's a lot of people starting to do that in healthcare in various areas. And I, I like all the, you know, most of the medical groups who are in the, in the sort of capitated at risk area, whose goal it is to sort of keep, you know, and I mentioned Crossover and Iora and Oak Street and, and, and ChemMed and those guys. There are many more, you know, they have the philosophy that of their goal and, you know, to some extent, Kaiser Permanente, although it's got a lot of baggage with it. Well, their goal is to keep you healthy for as long as possible and make sure that you know crazy stuff doesn't happen to you, but that your your conditions and diseases are managed well. And I think that you know that plus the, the growth of the navigators who improve customer service and get you to quality care quicker. I mean, there's a lot coming down the street, which is you know good for consumers, good for patients in that area. We know the answer to your question: Are we close to being done yet? I mean, no. But then again, financial services isn't being done. There are still there are still people who are, you know, we still have Will Fargo, what was he doing? Opening bank accounts in people's names and trying yeah. to, you know, that, you know, you have bad actors everywhere and you're going to have bad actors in, in healthcare, but at least 
we can start pointing, you know, kind of like the Facebook issue around uh, around data privacy and and uh, you know targeting. You can point out people will tell you, you know, we can start waving the flag at things that are going wrong and start encouraging people to do the things the, the things that are right. So this this is my last question. You being in healthcare since yeah years and years, seeing the evolution from health 1.0 to health 2.0. Where do you see healthcare, let's say, fast forward 10 years, or even like seven years? Where do you see, what do you see the healthcare experience for the everyday consumer, for the patient? Where do you see it going? So I think, you know, I I think I'm worried that we're not going to really fix the insurance financial issue for the for the there's a lot of politics in this for the folks at, bo- at the bottom and that, that we won't have as fast a spread of improving Medicaid and, the, and care for the uninsured as I think we ought to have. So I'm worried about that because a lot of that is going to be politics and you know predicting American politics has been very very tricky, but it doesn't it looks to me like that we've got you know if, if you're looking for the kind of green new deal of healthcare. We have the government in place that's as close to it as, as we're going to get structurally for the next five, six, seven, ten years. And we're nowhere close to doing that, right? They can't even agree on a on an infrastructure bill, which clearly would be advantageous to, to most Americans. And, and there are a couple of Democrat holdouts, Democratic holdouts for reasons that have to do with money and politics and all that stuff. So we're, not, we're clearly not getting to where we need to go, you know, in that area immediately. But for the majority of Americans who have employer-based care or get care via Medicare Advantage, Medicare or Medicare Advantage, I actually think that we're going to start to see some of the cream rising to the top of some of these companies. As I said, there's been a massive amount of venture funding coming into all these different, I mean, we're talking about 20 billion so far this year, probably 30 billion this year in venture funding for companies to scale up to provide many of these services we talked about. We're doing much better with data analytics and data, data interoperability and data analytics about what works and what doesn't work. And there's about a quarter of a trillion dollars sitting on the balance sheets of the major healthcare systems. Many of them are going to use that money to shore themselves up and keep doing what they're doing. But enough of them are going to be, you know, stick their nose in the air and sniff which way the wind is blowing and start figuring out how do we change so that we don't get left behind with these new guys. So I'm thinking about Mayo, Jefferson Clinic, Jefferson in Philadelphia, number of others who have explicitly said we're gonna you know we're gonna try and compete with these new guys and we're gonna look at you know doing this continuous this sort of continuous clinic type approach that I mentioned. So my sense is that for seven, 10, seven, 10 years out, the healthcare experience and the healthcare quality that most Americans will get will be a lot better than it will, you know, the, the, we'll see a lot more movement towards improvement in the experience if you like the branding, the experience, the understanding, the education, and also, you know, the actual care quality that gets delivered than we saw in the previous 20 years, because we've really been putting in place all the building blocks to be able to do this. And now I think we're going to see people actually go and do it. And it wouldn't surprise me if we get either, you know, a large consumer company we know already, whether it's an Amazon, Walmart, CVS, whomever, or a series of brand new companies coming on board who actually, you know, end up delivering the kind of consumer experience that, that, that we've seen in other industries that that's improved other industries. So, you know, I, I think of, uh, I don't know, back in the 80s and the 90s, certainly the 80s, right, you, you bought a car, it was a crapshoot, cars were pretty bad. Over time, the cars improved and improved and improved, and now they're improving again with the transition to electric, right, whereby 
you know, you didn't buy lemons and cars became better value and, and the price didn't go up too much, but the value, the quality continued consistently improved. They became safer and faster and all those, you know, they more features and all that kind of good stuff. I think, you know, you've seen that certainly, obviously, in the in telecommunications and computer business. You know, we're all doing this stuff on Zoom now and using tools that are cheap that didn't exist 20 years ago. And I think that it'll be a slow evolution, but in the next 10 years, that'll become much more the norm in healthcare. And people who have good healthcare, bad healthcare experiences won't have to put up with them. They can go to any number of competitors who will deliver them better healthcare experiences, and they will. So that's my hope for the next decade. I hope so, because in a decade's time, I'll be pushing 70, and I'll really start to be a heavy user of this stuff, and I want it to be better than it, better than it is now. <laughs> that's something that I would look forward to. The consumer experience, I mean, it's been so, so awful. It hasn't been hasn't had the consumer in mind. So I hope your vision for 10 years from now, what healthcare is like, I'm rooting for it. I hope so. I think you have a few more years to go before you're pushing 70, Michael, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, come, it, have, happens, uh, it happens to all of us eventually, hopefully. <laughs> As my old boss used to say to me, you know, difference between Medicare and Medicaid is that not many of us want to become Medicaid patients, but eventually you probably all want to get onto Medicare. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. yeah. Yeah. Well, so where can the listeners find you? Where can they follow you? Where can I, they I'm, get I'm your pretty, insights? Thanks, Michael. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on Twitter at Boltyboy, B O L T Y B O Y. If you go to the healthcare blog, that's the healthcare blog, all one word. Well, healthcare is two words, but in this case, the healthcare blog is, <laughs> is one word, healthcareblog.com. That's my blog. There's a lot of different people writing that. I, am, I have a fairly frequent show on that about twice a week with Jester Massa called Health in 2.0, where we discuss the sort of the startup scene. We have a conference which just finished, but you can still take a look at the, that's at whatsnexthealthcare.com. So I'm a, and then you can Google Matthew Holt Healthcare. You'll find a lot of, a lot of random stuff about me there. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on, Matthew. Is there anything you want to leave the, the listeners with before we sign off? You know, I think the only thing is to say is that this is still a business in which it's very hard for some of the new interesting players to sort of get their heads above the parapet and make themselves known. So if you're listening to this and you're interested as a consumer or as a consumer, as a caregiver for relatives or parents or whatever, it does you good to do a little bit of Googling around, but there are a lot of people on Twitter and on the internet who are willing to help, who know a lot about this stuff, about this new world of healthcare. And there's a guy called Sachin Jain, who's a buddy of mine, who's these days the CEO of Scan Health Plan in Southern California. He's always complaining that we have an innovation layer and an operational layer in healthcare, and the two of them never meet. And it's my goal, you know, if, if you're about to hit the operational layer as a consumer or a, or a patient, um, try and find somebody with the innovation layer who can tell you, you know, where to go and who's doing a better job in operating. <laughs> that's, that's what I suggest is, is look around a bit. You know, there are people who definitely can and will help, and that's, what, that's where you should go first. And, and look, there's Lots of things you can do that, that aren't great in healthcare, but uh, there's a lot of people willing to help. Love it. And I know the perfect person to reach out on Twitter. So nice. Matthew, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. It was great fun chatting about it with you. Thanks everybody for listening. See you next week. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Everyone Hates Healthcare. If you have a healthcare story, we want to hear it. All you got to do is shoot me an email with my healthcare story in the subject line to my story at healthkarma.org. Also, check out all the episode notes, resources, and more ways you can take control of your healthcare 
All you got to do is just visit healthkarma.org slash podcast. While you're on there, help us out. Don't forget to drop us a rating, a review, and share it with all your family and friends. Can't wait to see you next week. Thank you.